0: He's one of the world's most respected business experts, Jeffrey Hazlett.
1: I want to take you behind the scenes on what's happening in business today. And whether you're on Main Street or Wall Street, we're going to find out the secrets behind their success.
0: This is All Business with Jeffrey Hazelet. brought to you by Fortunet.
1: Hey, my guest today is a British journalist and television personality. You know him. He's worked as a writer and editor for several British tabloids, including The Sun, News of the World, and The Daily Mirror. And back in 1994, at the age of 29, he was appointed the editor of News of the World by none other than Rupert Murdoch. He became the youngest national newspaper editor in more than a half century. He gained notoriety for his invasive and thrusting style. He's very direct ignored celebrities privacy of all things and he's gone on and stepped in the shoes of larry king for almost four years doing a daily show on cnn he's now the u.s editor at large for mail online the daily mail i'm talking about Piers morgan hey Piers. What are you up to
2: these days? Well, I'm uh, currently speaking to you from Los Angeles, where I, I have a home. Uh, I'm the editor at large for DailyMail.com, which is a pure writing gig at the moment. Uh, but it's the it's the most read English-speaking newspaper website in the world, so it has phenomenal traffic—two hundred oh, million it's, plus yeah. uh, come into it every day. So it's a very, for me, as a writer all my life, I find it a very exciting platform.
1: Well, it, it's a it's a hot publication. I've known those guys since they got the thing started, and they, when they brought it back over to the U.S., they brought it to the U.S., uh, a lot of the marketers and, and journalists and a lot of advertising people I know over there, so they've been doing a, a great bang-up job. Let me let me talk to you a little bit, because you, you've got the journalism background, and we, yeah. you know I've went through all your intro in terms of all the things you've done, the records you've set, because there's a ton of them, but... You're also you know, in the business side of it, too. You've got to yeah. manage a little bit of the business side. Do you think that that's lended itself your, in terms of your journalism background to give you a little bit more of an up on business?
2: I honestly think that if you've been a professional journalist most of your life, as I have been, and you know, in my case, growing up in the rough-and-tumble battlefields of Fleet Street, which is this extraordinary uh, street, in, uh, in London, where you had over 40 publications all producing newspapers and magazines from all around the world, including Britain's 13 national newspapers, a very unusual number of national papers in one country. For a small, um, co-
1: for a small country, and, and by the way, Fleet Street really exists. It's over by, what, St. Paul's Cathedral.
2: Yeah, right? yeah, and it really yeah. exists now. It's, uh, most of the big newspapers are no longer there, but certainly when I, when I started out, that's where they all worked and they all drank together and they all did all sorts of things together but they also produced uh, these thunderous daily newspapers sold to millions and millions of of Brits. And, you know, some of the papers I was involved with would sell at their peak five, six million copies a day. So when you've grown up in that incredibly competitive, tough environment, I do think it gives you an extraordinary background and platform to do almost anything, whether it's, you know, people said to me, oh, Hollywood's tough. Hollywood hasn't come close in my experience (laughs) to toughness compared to Fleet Street. Celebrity Apprentice, and, you know, you and I met on that show, and you you helped uh, when you were at Kodak doing one of the challenges, I, you know, I found that actually a bit of a walk in the park compared to running a nightly newspaper in Britain. So I think all these things, whether it's hosting a cable news show, which to me was very similar to running a daily newspaper as the editor in Britain, but just doing it on television, to uh, almost any aspect of life, I find I always draw back on the basic business skills that I, I learned in those Street years. Well,
1: you know, you mentioned Celebrity Apprentice, and I gotta tell you, um, that was the very first season you were an early contestant of course went on to win that year which mm-hmm. was really hot but i but i watched you through that because i've you know i've always been a fan of those kinds of shows and obviously mm-hmm. was a fan of that one because i was the first sponsor in when i did it um although you only appeared to the third episode but one of the things i noticed when when i was there and you know the you know the executives have to come in and kind of give their pitch of what we like or what mm-hmm. we see without tipping the scales one way or the other but right. i watched you like latch on to a word or two that I had to say. Yeah. And then you ran with it and and I watched you in subsequent shows where you kind of like you you listened as opposed to some of the other celebrities that well, don't listen. The, yeah, yeah, look, the,
2: the, the, <laughs> I think the, the advantage I have is that most celebrities never listen to anybody. Yeah, um, only to themselves. They're by fans and PRs <laughs> and managers and so on. They all tell them what they want to hear. Uh, in, in newspapers, it's very different. Everyone pitches in with their opinions. And what you learn is to dissect the, the wheat from the chaff. You, tr- you learn to track in very quickly on what people are saying, which is actually the salient facts. And Donald Trump is a you know, masterful businessman, as we yep, know. yep. And and what was interesting about The Apprentice was that actually in each task, if you actually listen carefully to what he says at the start of each challenge, and more importantly, what, he, what the people brought in from outside companies say about what they're looking for, if you really laser focus on what they are, you can pick up all sorts of clues. Right. And I picked up a few things that you were saying about what you were really looking for from the Kodak challenge, and we won that challenge quite comfortably, and you know, I ended up winning. I think because it's that forensic eye for detail that all journalists instinctively have in them is very useful in a show like that, particularly when surrounded by a lot of celebrities who perhaps just don't need to have that in their lives.
1: Yeah, you know, and you, you got to the core. And I, I've watched you as you went through there, and even as, as you've gone back and made the you know, celebrity uh, appearances again with the uh, Celebrity Apprentice. You you always seem to like laser focus in on the core thing, either whether it's a problem that the teams are having or or a, a fight that these folks are having. I mean, you, you kind of you get to the to the core very quickly, don't you, Pierce? Well, look,
2: I think look, in the end, business, as you know, is about is about people. You know, I will say you can have the best product in the world, but if you haven't got the right people to to market it, to promote it, to sell it, to talk about it, to to improve it, to evolve at all those things that come into a business then you're never going to get anywhere yeah. and you know I think the, the thing about working on that show alongside somebody like Donald Trump if you look at Donald Trump and how he runs his business it's actually very straightforward and very simple he's a brilliant negotiator and he determines and exacts very high standards on anything that goes up in his name. You know, most of the big buildings that have his name on, he doesn't actually own, he licenses the name, but he insists on certain standards when they're put up, which meet the Trump criteria. And I think that's really important. It's about knowing your brand, controlling your brand, uh, but also applying just basic business principles to every aspect of your life and work because they all go hand in hand. Whether you're running your domestic household, you know, and fixing the pool and fixing your roof or whatever it may be in the end it's about negotiation it's about sourcing the best people to do the job for you it's about keeping on top of the work they do it's about having a beginning a middle and an end to the vision of what you're trying to achieve and about making sure that everyone involved in that whether it's a celebrity apprentice challenge fixing your own pool or running google it's the same principle it's about getting good people in to do a good job at the best possible price and keeping track of the whole thing as it as it unravels
1: yeah and- you and I call those conditions of satisfaction, and being very transparent about it. Which I think, which I think you are, I, and that's why you and I have always gotten along. Because mm. I'm a fairly straightforward guy, and I I like that style because it's no bullshit. Mm. Let's just put the stuff aside and call it what it is. And right,
2: absolutely I, right. And I think that too many people waffle in business and too many people are also just not very good negotiators and will accept the first thing they're offered or they don't put enough you know time and detail i mean my brother's a british army officer for example um and he's fought in several wars and he's been honored uh, many times and he always says to me they have an unofficial philosophy in his regiment which i think quite a few regiments have which is the seven p's uh, uh, prior planning and preparation prevent piss-poor performance. <laughs> and I think if
1: you basically... I, wanna, I, I, I need to P's, trademark that. If he hasn't trademarked it, we should trademark it. It is fantastic, I like the seven yeah.
2: P's. And I, I quote it often, and I quoted it to people. You know, when I ran the, the Daily Mirror in England for 10 years, I had 450 journalists working for me, and we would drum into them. They got bored of hearing it. But I said the whole point of the seven P's is that basically by the time you get to actually what you're going to be doing, whether it's fighting a war or, you know waging a pitch for business or actually launching a new product, whatever it may be, you must have done your due due, due diligence. It's incredibly important. And it's all about the preparation. It's all about, you know, when I did interviews at CNN, for example, I did 1,250 shows in, in three and a half years there and what was vitally important to me was making sure that I knew everything about the guests before I sat down with them because what happens is they, they might go off at a tangent into a different part of their lives right. and if you're not prepared for that, if you hadn't really put the yards in yep. to work out where they might go then you're left you're left cold um, whereas the way I used to do it was that sometimes I'd actually have quite a few guests say to me God, you know more about me than I do Which and is that's good. the perfect place yeah. to be as an interviewer yeah. <laughs> yeah when
1: you can surprise them, it's always good to know that and have that extra surprise because even in business, people will sit back and say, "Oh, you did your homework,
2: you yeah know? exactly.
1: you can't yeah. imagine how many times now you know, I go out and ask fans, uh, peers, you got a lot as well, and I've got some and and, and but I ask them about you and to, you know I, I ask them to give me questions, which I'm going to get into a couple questions, but yeah. I got to tell you, you know with you, it's either people are either hot or cold, you know? And and, and, I got, I got good. I got bad. I got ugly. And, and there, it seems like a lot of the folks that you, you are very polarizing one way. You kind of, how does that make you feel?
2: Uh, I, I, I prefer it, to be honest yeah. with you. I think if you have a kind of saintly reputation and everyone loves you, it must put unbearable pressure on you throughout your <laughs> life. I've always been a fairly polarizing character. I've played up to that on social media. I'm deliberately provocative. Um, I believe in expressing a, uh, firm opinions about things. And if you do that in life, particularly in America, where people could be quite sensitive about that kind of thing, um, you know, it's one of the reasons so many Brits have done well on the talent shows and right. so on from you yeah. know, America's Got Talent. Oh, even from, and Gordon Ramsay and all these sort of characters is that they just, uh, Brits tend to be very blunt and other people perhaps in America sometimes take it as rudeness whereas that's in Britain the way we are so I've always tried to be very straightforward, very blunt, very uh, opinionated and if you take opinions, you're going to polarise your, your followers you're going to have half of them agreeing with you and half of them disagreeing and if you take opinions on issues as hot button as, say, gun control, yep, which, as I did yep, very loudly have. and vociferously for a long right. time at CNN, then you're going to hit right into some very, very sharp rhetoric from people on the other side. And I accept that. It's, it's what goes with the territory. If I didn't want to engage in that kind of visceral debate, I wouldn't start it.
1: So why do you... Let, let's take gun control. Now, you and I differ on that, but we can always have a good debate, and healthy yep. debate's a good thing. But... and you know cuz I'm a very avid outdoorsman I come from South Dakota so I'm yep. in the middle of of hunting country that's what we do our national pastime is to kill our state bird. so yep. you know when we when, but but that gun issue and the right to bear arms that that became kind of a I don't know one that's really been tagged with you do you, yep. is, but but as opposed to like say you know, I think you get more of it than Obama does and certainly like even I used to have a show on Bloomberg you know with Mike Bloomberg I mean he's mm-hmm. been adamant about gun control too but you seem to have have been a lightning rod for. Well, this.
2: look, I think one of the reasons is my accent. I'm I'm a British guy talking about an American cultural issue. You think uh, that's a big thing? I mean, because I actually, think it's a big thing. Is I think it allowed the it, it allowed the the, the pro gun anti gun control lobby to sort of position me as the new king george the Third who was coming back to exact revenge for what happened and seize everybody's guns and all that kind of thing. And it really wasn't like that. And I yeah. think um, I think one of the problems with that whole debate is how angry everybody gets on all sides. Well they that, do, don't they? They really yeah. get they
1: really get I mean you you talk about you know rednecks coming out. I mean yeah. and I say rednecks in terms of the color I mean yeah. it it just the flush comes to the face almost immediately.
2: And yeah, look I think I think um The reason it's so complex is that many Americans believe that it's their constitutional right to bear uh, firearms under the Second Amendment. And if you actually read the Second Amendment, it's it's a very ambiguously worded Couple of paragraphs, and it has in the middle of it the most expensive comma in terms of money and loss of life <laughs> Which, in the history yeah, of probably literature. I because and I would,
1: and I would agree with you. I, you know, and I, I'm a, I'm a scholar of that, and having grown up and played in politics a little bit, so mm. I get what you're saying. Yeah, let me, i, mean, I, I to take it. I don't want to debate the issue because I'm no, not, no. I'm not here to do that, and no, I don't no. want to do that with you because I want to talk more about. Do you think this the, is it helped you or hurt you when it comes to the business of your business?
2: Well, I, I certainly think that the at CNN, for example, uh, I signed a four-year deal with them, and I, I served out that, uh, pretty well all of it. Um, and I thought it was, it was a great show, by the way. I, well, I, you, I, yeah, I mean, well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Well, but you and stepped I had, into great some great big shoes. I, I did, you know, did yeah. 1,250 shows. So from well, my point of view, I, I, I really enjoyed that and yeah. had uh, interviewed some of the great people in the world, and yeah. you know, I have no regrets about it. But I do think that probably the gun debate which I became so personified with after Sandy Hook and Aurora in particular, yep. um, I think it did polarize me in a way that made it quite difficult for the network. And I'm sure that part of their thinking when it came to whether we should continue with the show or not was, well, I know it was, was, you know, yeah. d- do we want to keep annoying a lot of our, of our viewers with this British guy telling them that their laws are wrong? And I totally got that. Yeah. Um, you know, I understood that that was a problem for a network and that maybe I was better off having the debate outside of somewhere like CNN, which tends to be pretty straight down the middle on news. And I totally accepted that. I have no regrets. I had a great time there and it's what it was. But you know, I I get a lot of people, particularly in LA and New York... Oh, uh, sure you would. uh, A lot of people come up to me who really liked the fact that I ran with that debate and wasn't afraid to call out the the pro-gun lobby, which to me is a pretty uh, pernicious lobby. It's a group where you have this weird situation where the NRA is basically financed by Gun manufacturers, and so every time there's a tragedy, the NRA leadership comes out and says, "If only everybody else had had a gun, then it wouldn't have happened." it's so yeah, they sell the same, more guns for the yeah, people financing. Yeah, but Pierce, so it, Pierce, it's a pretty vicious circle, isn't
1: it? Yeah, it is. Well, it can be, but at the same time, let's let's get into every other lobby. Because I used to be a lobbyist years yeah, yeah. ago. That you know, the health insurance, health care is funded yeah, by the insurance companies thing. and so forth and so on. So yeah. the money's going to follow the money. So that that, regardless of that, but yeah. you know, I got to tell you, it was regardless of whether you where you stood on the position, It was good television. Hmm. It was, I thought it was. It was. It was. Yep. Some of it. I. Mean, I can't remember that one nut you had on one time. I mean, it was just he was way over the top, and I was <laughs> embarrassed. I can't remember the guy's name, but I'm sure you remember him.
2: Uh, yeah, Alex Jones. He it, was a right wing uh, conservative it, yeah, radio well, host. Yeah,
1: it, it was. He was. It was just. I was going. Oh my gosh, where'd they dig this guy from?
2: And, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I, do, I, mean I, I. don't want to debate the issue, like you yeah. said, but I do think the the key thing I would do differently if I did again, I wouldn't make it a debate about gun control. I would make it a debate about gun safety. I think that Americans instinctively recoil from the word control, just as we British people uh, do. I think the word safety is a much less aggressive term. And I think if really the debate was simply framed in how do we make America safer with the sheer volume of guns in circulation, you'd get a lot more people on both sides calming down a bit. And I'm hoping to make a guns documentary movie this year um, playing into that theme, I think, of just safety. It's not about control, really. I don't want to go and control people's lives or take away their guns. But I do want to stop these terrible tragedies all the time happening where little kids, we've seen a plethora of them recently, little kids picking up guns and Shooting uh, their parents in supermarkets and so on—all that is completely unnecessary and very avoidable.
1: Well, we should almost take this to the food debate too. I mean, about right. overweight and obesity and everything else. You can, you can't. Don't don't tell me I can't eat a Big Mac. But you might right. want to. You know, we could talk about food uh, in terms of better choices we could make.
0: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play It at Play It. Taking you behind the scenes of what's happening in the business world. Jeffrey Hazlett hosts All Business. Brought to you by Fortinet.
1: Let's get back a little bit more on business. I and I appreciate you going into that. And you're one of those kind of guys. I know you're not going to skirt off of any subject. Sure. So which is which is awesome. I appreciate that. And I, and I like that transparency. I think we yeah. need more of it. What do you? L- let's talk about which do you think has got a better business climate? What do you think about the U.S. business climate right now?
2: Uh, I would say it's, it's pretty encouraging. It I mean, but it, it may be slightly false hope. And the reason I say that is that I went to fill up my, my wife's Audi car uh, two days ago here in L.A., in Malibu. Oh. And it cost me $39 to fill up the 15-gallon tank. And I stared at this... Check, it was receipt, and I was like, "What? Yeah, is that right? Um, Yeah." And I remembered filling it up about a year and a half ago, or actually, it wasn't even that. Maybe like ten months ago, the Mm -hmm. same station, and it was like sixty-five dollars. So I think everyone in America is currently filling up their cars with gas and they're getting these ridiculously low prices by comparison to a year ago. But, that, but that's but that, so it's no coincidence that Obama's approval rating has gone back over fifty percent. Yeah the but that's just on gas.
1: Months. I mean what about overall? I mean well, why, well, I why, why, I by, 18, let me ask so, no Pierce, let me ask yeah. this. Why why do we have to put this little disclaimer on it? I think business is going pretty well right
2: now. And I, I think I, most Well here's people, what I was going to say to you. I think there's, there's two types of business going on there. You've got that kind of business right at the sharp end where the ordinary voter, and we're going to have an election next year, which is will determine whether the country goes Republican or Democrat. And I think that, that there's no doubt that at the moment a lot of people are feeling much more confident generally about the economy simply because they're going to fill up their cars and they're getting ridiculously cheap prices. That, now, that, without question, but that's always helped. Right. That obviously helps the general mood about the economy. Right. In terms of the, the the strength of the American economy, I think there are proper green shoots, and I think right. there's proper stability. You look at the performance of the, 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 the major stocks, now you look at Apple's results yesterday yeah. were just stupendous. Yeah. Um, if you look at the performance of all the major companies, then you've got to say that America is is definitely moving comfortably now away from that recession hell that it had for quite a few years and moving into a far more stable position economically. But I do still think there is a massive disparity and gap between the rich and the poor in well, America, without, which but has got but, to
1: be closed. Yeah, but there's always, I, I, to some extent, I will say there's there's always been that when you get into solving that issue. But, but by and large, I think it's been a pretty good business economy. we just been in this funk about do we even want to stick our heads up and even say that. Yeah. Well, how would you compare... Um, and I've done a lot of business over in the UK. How would you compare the business climate or the the way in which you do business, say, in the UK versus the US?
2: Uh, I think Americans by nature in business are are much more aggressive. I Mm -hmm. think they're harder working generally. And it is a generalization, but my having worked in Britain and America, there's Mm -hmm. no doubt that Americans take far less vacation time. They put far more hours in, I think, to what they do, particularly in business. I think the reason for that is pretty straightforward. There are 320 million Americans and there aren't that many prize jobs in business so a lot of competition for a small number of places means that people work incredibly hard and that's a great American virtue and and side of Americans I think is very laudable Um, having said that if you ask me what is better about the way Britons do business I think we're far less crippled by legalese and bureaucracy you know to buy a car in America takes you know, two hours of the business manager and 14 documents you have to sign, signing away all sorts of well, you That's because you're living else. out
1: in California. You should move to South Dakota. It's a lot easier.
2: Right. Well, I'm sure there are parts <laughs> of America that are easy. But generally speaking, I think that the way that lawyers and bureaucrats in America have strangled the process of doing business, Donald Trump yeah. uh, said an interesting thing to me. He said that you know, to build a major bridge in America, uh, now would take about 20 years from start to finish. By the time you've gone through all the planning, the health and safety, all the regulations, the lawyers, the battles, and so on, the very same bridge in Shanghai would take 18 months from start to finish, built to the same health and safety specification. Yeah. That cannot be good for American business, and it is only good for Chinese uh, economic power. And let's, yeah. be, no, let's not beat about the bush here. The, the Chinese economy, if it hasn't already is going to be the world's number one economy very, very shortly, and America will cease to be number one. That should be a concern to Americans.
1: Absolutely, and, you, you know, rallying around yeah, we should be rallying around how to fix that. Let me ask you a couple of questions. I, I, I as I said, I write to the fans. I say, hey, give me some questions, and yeah. man, did I get a lot of them. But somebody wrote, and I thought this was Rebecca Wiltshire. Yeah. She wrote and said, I would like to know what you would tell your 20-year-old self in relation to the importance of networking in business.
2: How- that is vital. Yeah, that Basically, it's vital. And the more friends you can build up in a network, the more you can, you know, j- just break bread with people. There's, there's nothing to beat a, a, a business lunch or a business breakfast or a drink or a dinner, whatever it may be, yeah. social contact with people who may or may not have any influence on your, on your career or who may have a just completely different perspective on your business. You know, I often just go and have dinner with completely random people and say, what do you think of DailyMail.com or yep. what did you think of CNN or what do you think of whatever it is? Or with customers. And, I'm and,
1: sure you go with customers from time.
2: The totally sales totally guys, with customers. Yeah, sales guys customers. take you along for that. Yeah, but I think also with people from completely different businesses. Yeah. You know, I like talking to sports people about the dynamics of a newspaper website. I like talking to lawyers, I like talking to doctors. It doesn't matter who they are, because they will bring their own prism of business now to what you're doing and point out things that perhaps in your own slightly cosseted world of journalists, you haven't seen for yourself.
1: Yep. Well, and even though they might be doing a profession you know, like accounting or, or being a physician, they still are involved in a business. Right. Yeah, let me ask you, and back in, this is from John Gill, and I thought this was a great question. It came in from LinkedIn. Uh, John, he's at, here in New York, and he wrote, In 1994, you were appointed at 29 years old the editor of News of the World by Rupert Murdoch. And mm-hmm. curious to know what you learned the most from that early career experience.
2: Well, that I was—I was the youngest editor ever to take over a national paper in yeah. Britain, yeah. and that was a pretty daunting experience. But at the same time, I'd been empowered to do it by the world's most powerful media figure, and I thought he's not stupid, and yeah. he saw something in me—probably uh, youthful energy and you know uh, enthusiasm and a, a capacity for a lot of hard work. Um, and I think he just decided to, to run with it, and it was very successful. I was there for two years. We we took the circulation to roaring heights. We broke a lot of big stories, and uh, Rupert and I, you know, had a, a pretty formidable team on that paper. Uh, how, I then He's how, how actually one of his rivals. Yeah, well, that's
1: right. Well, how about how long did you know him before he made that appointment? And did he make know, it, or did I, I he have somebody knew else? Him
2: personally, yeah. I'd worked at the Sun, which was his daily paper in London, for about five years as his show business editor on the paper, mm-hmm. interviewing big stars and traveling around the world doing that kind of thing. I wasn't connected to the main executive tier of the paper even. So it was a huge gamble by Rupert at the time. You know, He took somebody who was just basically a, a showbiz writer, columnist and interviewer and propelled me to, to run the biggest selling newspaper in the country, in fact, in the world. So it was you know, it was a big deal. Um, I walked into a newsroom of 150 people, <laughs> uh, all of whom were yeah. younger than me, yeah. uh, were, were older than me. Yeah. So I'm entering into very strange territory where the boss was basically the youngest person. Did I
1: mean? Did he? Did he really make the handpick there? I mean, did did he come down and say, "Hey, I want you to do this"? Or yeah,
2: we we. It's interesting. We i will tell quite a funny story, but he he had a dinner in London before this de- decision was made, and we all sat down and he basically we got, we had a few glasses of wine. there's about ten of us, executives from both papers, and then at the end of the meal. The wine waiter came to me and said, would you like uh, uh, like a little uh, uh, something at the end, sir, to drink? And I a said, little well, cordial
1: gee. or something, yeah?
2: Yeah, and it, yeah. It, went to, it went to me, and I said, well, what would you recommend? He said, I'd recommend the peach brandy, sir. So I said, okay, I'll have a peach brandy. And then the next four people after me all said no, believing that Murdoch would not approve of this seriously heavy drinking Uh, and it got to rupert uh, and he said make that too i'll have a peach brandy too and you can see the faces on the other people completely Uh, crushed that they put all their chips on red and it came up black so I'm, i'm pretty confident my my audacity in selecting a peach brandy at the end of that meal probably swung it yeah how often do you drink a peach brandy now uh, pretty regularly, I like to have it and remember that moment because I think yeah. it changed my life. And that,
1: that, it, it, but you know what? It becomes almost like a, a sign for you, doesn't it, or a, a way a lucky a lucky coin. But you know or what? It
2: taught, you know what it told me, Jeff, is was that you've got to be true to yourself. Yeah. I really wanted to have a brandy, and I took advice from somebody who had served Rupert Murdoch many times, and he gave me great advice. I ordered it; Rupert ordered the same, and we kind of bonded in that moment. But I'm sure that Rupert would look at that group and think. Who are the mice and who are the men here? Who are the yep. ones that are going to run with the the herd, and who are the ones who are going to perhaps stand up and be counted for what they want and be able to stand up to me sometimes as well? That's the kind of leaders he wants in his company. Well, and, and you ha- in the usual way.
1: I'm sure you've had to do that a couple times. Like say he would call you or something, and say, "No, I'm sorry, that's not right. We're not doing it that way." I mean, Trump yeah. said you. Said, we we both know Donald Trump pretty well. Yeah, you know, and and I've done business with him as uh, on numerous occasions since I left the corporate world Mm. and he's that way too I mean when you when you get to most of these guys at this level and I include you in there and me myself in there we're all pretty pig-headed or you know strong in terms of the way that we believe and have a good sense of ourselves but you see that there don't you all the time
2: yeah completely and Trump's a great example of somebody who absolutely knows his own mind, he knows what he's good at, he knows what he's not so good at, very opinionated, but perfectly happy, as I discovered, to have an argument and change his mind, if you could persuade him. But he wants to to have a proper argument put forward to him. And I think Rupert's exactly the same, is that these guys didn't get to be billionaires by never listening to people, but they did at the same time have that little sense of risk-taking, of uh, aggression in business, of an ability to bet the bank occasionally yep. on a vision, yep. and to go through with it. And I think that's what you have to have to distinguish you from the, the herd and to become a leader.
1: Yeah, and it's always interesting. I've met Rupert numerous times and was a customer of um, various companies, and, and, and even with Donald, too. I've always found that it's interesting with all these types of leaders is they really have a good sense of who they are and what they are, and they're very transparent about it. And they're willing to bet it, but at the same time, you know, as you said, they have a a sense of knowing what's right and what's wrong, when to bet it and when not to. It's like, you know, I'll give you a good example, another little story as well. You know, one time Donald was trying to reach me on something. He was trying to get a hold of me to do some sponsorship on something, and Mm -hmm. it was when the officials were in his office, and he called me and couldn't get through because I was dealing with something out in L.A., and I finally called him back, and I said, he said, well, you call these people. I said, well, do you want me to call them because you want them to know that you can get me to call them, or Mm -hmm. do you really want me to spend the money?" on the thing and there was like a pause and he said both you know? <laughs> so which i appreciated hey so let me speak about this being open and i think integrity and this is from jackie Haig. Mm-hmm. she she wrote in and said integrity seems to be a challenge in today's business world we have ponzi schemes we have these fraud we have the and we have press bugging we could talk mm-hmm. about that mm-hmm. what would you do to address this in, in an organization moving forward how would you deal with it differently
2: well, I think the real challenges for all these organizations come when technology moves and allows perhaps certain things to be done which weren't possible before. We certainly had that in the newspaper business in Britain, as everybody knows. And I think it's a very complex issue. And, and in the end, the best advice I ever got given was, look, if you could imagine everything that you do on an hour-by-hour basis in your business being put in a headline on the front page of the New York Times and be comfortable with that, then you're doing the right thing. If If you blink and stop and think that wouldn't look good, then it's not going to look good. And I think that's probably a pretty good yardstick for business generally is that most people know where the boundaries are. I interviewed a fascinating guy called Jordan Belfort. who was a real life wolf of Wall Street. And what was interesting about him was everyone I talked to before I interviewed him said, you know, he would have been a billionaire trader without Crossing the line. Right. Ask him about that. And I said to him, you know, A, do you think that's true? And B, why did you cross the line then? And he said, I do think it's true because I had a special gift for it. He said, and the reason is I didn't just become a monster overnight. I didn't just suddenly become an illegal, unethical monster. What happened was I was young, I was hungry, I was ambitious, and I remember crossing a slight small line once. And it, I shouldn't have done it. I knew I shouldn't have done it, but I got away with it. So I then put it away and thought, I'm not going to do it again, learned a lesson, fine. But then because I got away with it, a little later, another opportunity came up that was a little bit dodgy as well, and I went for it, and it was a bit bigger. And again, I got away with it. And he said, eventually, I kept chipping away at my own sense of morality and ethics, uh, chasing the big money, and in the end... I got caught, and the damage it did to me personally and my business and everything was completely ruinous. And yet probably the amount of the business I did that was illegal or unethical never totaled more than 5% so why did i do it and he said i i don't have a proper answer for you other than one day i woke up and looked in the mirror and thought you've become a monster but i didn't start that way and it was just a very gradual chipping away of my own ethics so i think that anyone in business will understand what he's talking about and everyone's been presented regularly if you if you get to the top of business with ethical moral dilemmas oh it happens every day i mean right I, and you have, to, you have to basically i think be true to your gut instinct i remember yeah. You know Rupert Murdoch said to me once, you know, he'd, he'd always trusted his gut instinct, and the very few times he'd gone against it, he'd always regretted it. Yeah. And that's pretty good advice.
1: Well, you know, and my own partner, and I, we own other businesses as well, comes to me, and there's a guy that we need to pay as part of his commission plan, and we don't like the guy, but we're, you know, and we got we're gonna sign off, and we're gonna, there's another thousand dollars, and you're thinking, well, it's a thousand bucks, just you know, tell him to eat it. Mm. But then, no, I owe it to him, so yep. I'm gonna pay it. You know, And that's that's just kind of the way I feel about those kind of things. And I think that's a good point.
2: Well, yeah. I, talked, I talked to Warren Buffett, actually. I interviewed him on yeah. there. And he said to me, interesting thing, that he still does massive business deals with certain people with a handshake.
1: Oh Well, I I'd still do most of my deals with yeah. handshakes. I mean, if you can't sh- shake their hand, I mean, the attorney's got to work stuff out to yeah. some extent. But it's really, in the end, it's about that trust, yeah. sincerity and reliability, and, and then the competency. Absolutely right.
0: to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it you're listening to all business with jeffrey hazlett brought to you by fortinet
1: let me turn to a personal question. Then I'm going to jump in. I want to do a, what I call rapid fire. where I just give you a couple of keywords, sure. and then we'll we'll shoot to it. And then I want to give you a shameless plug too. Whatever <laughs> whatever shameless plug. Since you're now in America, I want you to be able to have this shameless plug. No but problem. Let me ask you a personal question. I? When I went through and you talked about prep, uh, prepping for interviews, mm-hmm. I found out that you would actually have a different name. Then so mm-hmm. when I, I you were born Omera. Yep. And now Morgan, you took your I think your stepfather's name,
2: right? Yeah, my my father was Irish and he died when I was 1 mm-hmm. and it's obviously a big uh, uh, tragedy in the family and then my mother met this great guy uh who was Welsh actually. So another Celt but different yep. side and he um he brought up me and my uh, army brother who is a year and a half younger than me. And then they had, uh, my mother and, and he had two more kids. So there's four of us. Um, right. but you know, like, uh, like a lot of families, you know, we've had our own fair share of ups and downs and it's how you deal with those, you know?
1: Yeah, it always is. Always is. And it's, uh, you know, and whatever we were at when we were five, six years old is the way we're at pretty much today too. Right? Yeah. I agree with that. Hey, let me ask you a couple rapid fire, just some, some yeah. easy things and then just give me whatever you think about it and go off on them if you want. But okay. Okay. Arsenal versus Manchester United.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're the enemy. I've I've supported Arsenal for 42 years. Uh, It's an agonizing emotional rollercoaster from triumph to disaster. I wish I could say that I kept an even keel throughout both, but anyone who reads my Twitter feed will know that I basically go completely crackers half the time watching Arsenal. So um, like anything in my life, I like to win. Yeah. And unfortunately, at Arsenal, we haven't won much in the last Yeah, haven't of year, so done it. I mean, man,
1: and man, you're such a powerful team. I'm not a huge uh, football or soccer fan, although I did a show on the Seattle Sounders, which I think is a pretty good team. Yeah. Yeah, they've done pretty well, They've they've, they've gotten a number of players. Let me ask you about another sport in the UK, mm-hmm. cricket versus rugby.
2: <laughs> well I'm a cricket man I, so, I, I play cricket I actually played for England uh, the England schools team when I was 13 so I was pretty good at cricket see I, I played I,
1: rugby now I'm a former number eight so okay, I, well, I played eight did. so I'm, yeah. I'm sitting there going why the hell would you want to play cricket my,
2: <laughs> well I love like rugby in fact my, my my youngest son's very good at rugby so I, I totally uh I totally love the sport I was just ever very good at it whereas cricket I happened to have a natural aptitude I was a fast pitcher and um, I had a natural aptitude for it I still love playing it I still love watching it but it's a very acquired taste, particularly for Americans. When I try and explain that this summer we're playing a five-game series against oh, Australia, which yeah. is the most famous yep. international tournament in world cricket. Huge, huge. For the ashes, yeah. we call it. Yes. Um, but each game can last five days. And at the yeah. end of it, the final score might be 0-0. Zero, zero. Yeah. <laughs> but we really enjoyed it. Americans look at me like I've gone completely mad.
1: Well, you have gone mad if you think that's fun. Because there's yeah. no way. I'm, I, every once in a while I'm in an r- Indian restaurant or somewhere, and they've got the cricket matches up watching. I'm going, why? Please, why, but yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, but I get, I get it. By the way, and you know, I am very, very confident in my manhood. But I think you would look pretty good in a cricket outfit.
2: Quite well, frankly. Well, uh, thank yeah. you very much, Jeffrey. Yeah. But I would also like to see one day. I would love to organize uh, a game between a combined World Rugby Fifteen and a combined. Oh, wow. uh, NFL team without the padding and helmets and see how they get on.
1: Well, rugby would kick their ear in. They, that's they really, I I, I'm serious they would. I mean, I'm a former football player, too. I was high school American, all that stuff as well. Yeah. I went on to play rugby, and rugby's a much tougher game. Yeah. It's a, you need much more conditioning and so forth. And, 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 and there'd be a lot less injuries if they didn't have a lot of the equipment on the American football side, too. So, but Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but that doesn't I mean. I've watched people lose ears. I've watched people knock their knees out and everything else. Oh, hey, yeah. Here's another one. Bangers and M.A.S.H., versus Beans and Franks?
2: Uh, I'd be a banger as a mash man yeah. myself. I, I, it's one of my favorite dishes. It's the it's it's best comfort food out there. If you get the right sausages and the right mash, you can't yeah. beat it.
1: Yeah, people, you, you got You probably love a little bu- a bubble and squeak there, too, right? No,
2: I love the bubble and squeak. How about spotted
1: dick? Do you like spotted dick? Now, every, I, I everyone's going to be wondering the what the heck I just asked you, right? <laughs> but
2: that's a great dessert. If you dessert. want me your spotted dick, I more than happily consume it. And, oh, and if, if you're yeah. ringing in now, worried about what we've just said, you need to study your gastronomy.
1: Exactly. I'm telling you, if you've ever had it, I'm telling you spotted dick is unbelievable. <laughs> All right, here's one for you. Amorosa. Yes. Yeah, what, what do you have to say about that?
2: Uh, I, I can't even talk about Amorosa without coming out in slight wheels around my body. Uh, it, my body immediately inflames at the mere mention of that ghastly lady's name. She, she's
1: a little different, isn't she? I mean, it, well, that's
2: well, one way of putting it, yeah. yeah I, thought, I mean, I the, she was absolutely horrendous. But her, her whole modus operandi was just to goad me into exploding with rage. And what infuriated well, her was, was to, Well, she did a good job. Well, I was just <laughs> able to outplay her, and that, yep. was, that was her undoing.
1: Yeah, well, without question, I think you played a very smart game. Is there something you would have done differently um, in the game? I mean, you know, Trace Atkins, I remember sitting in the finale – uh, yeah. And Trace was actually in my dressing room for like a good hour of that. Mm. And we, you know, what a nice guy as mm. you, I know great you guy. would say, great guy, good, good family, good kids, everything. Is there is? Would you have done anything differently? I mean, you won, so but would you have done anything? No, different? I would have done it exactly
2: the same way because I, I I read all Donald Trump's books before I competed, especially Think Big and Kick Ass, and yep. I knew the kind of man that he was and what he'd be looking for. And the bottom line is, in the end, the stats don't lie. You know, I may have played it hard and aggressively, ruthlessly on occasion, uncompromisingly, but I was able to sit there in that final boardroom and say, look, I've raised more money than all the other contestants put together for charity. And secondly, I've won... More challenges than all of them put together. Yeah. So when you look at this as a as a, a business competition, how could I not win? Unless it's it a Mister Nice Guy competition, in which case, by all means, give it to Trace. Trace would have won. Guy. Yeah, I know. In terms no offense. Of, the, of the competition, yeah. I I whooped him.
1: Yeah, well, in no offense, Trace, if it was a nice guy competition, Trace would win. Although I still think you're a pretty nice guy. I just think you're very <laughs> straightforward and and you you speak your mind, which is good. So let me give you a chance for a blatant, shameless
2: plug. Is there anything you want? to get out, get out there or plug. Well, I'm doing, I'm doing uh, about three uh, blog columns a week for DailyMail.com in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I, I urge people to read them. I write about everything from this week uh, I wrote about uh, Obama's visit to Saudi Arabia and the impact of that and what it all meant. I've written about the Charlie Hebdo attacks in Paris, and I've also written about things like Kim Kardashian's uh, legendary derriere. So there's, there's going to be something for everybody there. I do that on the biggest platform in newspaper websites in the world. I'm also doing, uh, as I said, a, a documentary about gun safety. Let me phrase that very safety. carefully.
1: Safety, that's going I'm, I'm, I, I can't wait to see it. It's yeah, a, and
2: a, so they're, they're the two plugs I would I would put out there now. Are you still
1: active with the Wounded Warrior Program?
2: With the what, sorry? Wounded Warrior yes, Program. Yes, I am, yeah, 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 I am with the Intrepid Fallen Heroes Fund, which I raised nearly a million dollars for on that on that show, and they stayed in touch with me, and it was, I've got to say, going to the Intrepid Center down in San Antonio was one of the single most Moving, inspiring things I've ever done in my life. So I've got a big military family and had some who've been seriously wounded. So I think anything that anyone can do at any time to, to help the wounded troops when they come back from these battlefields, we should all dig deep.
1: And, and your Twitter handle, what's your Twitter handle so everybody knows It's
2: at Piers Morgan, yeah. P-I-E-R-S-M-O-R-G-A-N, and I've got about 4.5 million followers now, so join the party.
1: Oh, wow, that's a that's a number. I'm trying to catch up to you. I'm going to do my very best. But, <laughs> hey, Piers, you're a gentleman. I appreciate it, and, and you're welcome to come on out to the ranch in South Dakota. We'll, I'll take you pheasant hunting. I would, You, you
2: know. know what? I'd love pheasant. I would enjoy that.
1: Yeah, and if nothing else, we'll eat a few, and we'll, you know what? And I'll even serve up some peach brandy. For All right? <laughs> I would love that. jeff thank you very much all right my friend well thank you and i appreciate it my pleasure take care it's all business with jeffrey hazlett on play.it and if you want to reach out to me do so on twitter facebook instagram and even linkedin i'm the guy that's answering all of those tweets all of those posts and all of those links so come and get the good the bad and the ugly on all business with jeffrey hazlett